The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 251. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you don't want to search for all those social media accounts, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook and free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. Uh, the audiobook is read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can, uh, through a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also buy your book plates there. So if you've got one of my books, you can order one of those. I'll sign one of, book, one of the book plates for you, and you can stick that on your book, and you've got my autograph. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show. The best way to support The Brian McClanahan Show is go by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. And when you do enroll, you do get a free course. So check your email after you get that after you enroll, the course comes in the email. So get that free course, 10 Myths of American History. And of course, you can purchase one of my seven classes that are available. I've got lots of great stuff. My newest course is U.S. History to 1865. It is a survey course that you wish you had when you were in college or in high school. It is designed to be or can be used as a homeschool curriculum. But if you're not interested in homeschooling or if you're not a homeschooler, you can still use it. You just ignore the tests that I've given you. And some of the work, but uh, the course is 54 lectures, 36 lectures on material, 18 reading seminars. It is a beefy course, the most comprehensive course I've offered, and so you're going to want to get that. But the other six courses are great because they build on what I talk about in that survey course. So you got lots of material out there. It's a great way to support the show and a great way to get an education, learning real history that's not influenced by PC or Marxism or progressivism, all that kind of stuff. So, you can also support the show by going to Learn True, T R U E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. That is a great website as well. Over 20 courses, a lot of bang for your buck. So, uh, going out there and get into Learn True, T R U E, History. And finally, don't forget to rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. The more ratings, the better, the more people see it. The more people will listen to it, and so the more people will be thinking locally and acting locally. So go on out there and help me out by doing that. And, of course, get your Brian McClanahan Show gear. Go to that. Uh, go to my webpage. At the top of the page, you'll see Shop. Click on that. Take you out to all of the uh, materials that I have with my logo on it. You want to get that stuff. It's high-quality, good stuff, and it helps support the show as well. So lots of ways to get involved. And always send me your show recommendations. If you're listening to this for the first time, if you never heard me before, send me some recommendations. Say, I want to hear this. Now, I may not do it. And, of course, as I've mentioned before, I may not email you back, but I do read them. So um, send me those recommendations or those requests, I should say, so I can do some things. Now, this is actually, this show today is not a listener-generated request, but it's something that I get, uh, not specifically, but I get these questions a lot. Um... Re detailing or, or trying to detail what's going on in this particular speech. It is the most infamous speech of the 19th century, uh, without question. And so I'm going to talk about it. It's Alexander H. Stevens' cornerstone speech. The reason I'm going to talk about it is there was a piece that was published in the Imaginative Conservative, which is a very good website. 
I like the people that run the website. The articles there are very good. Um, but this particular piece gets into the Confederate Constitution. Now, I cover the Confederate Constitution in detail in my American Constitutions class. It's, that's one of the best parts of the course, by the way, because it's, it's a part of American, the American constitutional tradition that most people don't understand. But uh, the first part of the speech, or first part of the paper, I should say, is dedicated to Stevens' speech. And there are some misconceptions about this speech, and, and it's easy to, to pull quotes and not get the context of what Stevens was talking about. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about that speech, put it within the context of the 19th century and what Americans, not just Southerners, were saying, and then also talk about what Stevens himself said about that particular speech in 1865. So he gives this speech um, during secession winter. He, he makes this speech in Savannah, Georgia. It's written down by some newspaper reporters and then published in Savannah newspapers. Now, uh, Mr. Connolly, who writes this particular piece for the Imaginative Conservative, makes the claim that this particular speech, he says, quote, complicated the Confederate cause in Europe as England and France hesitated to jump on to the defense of a new nation advertising its foundations in the preservation of slavery and muddy the waters for, for Southern defenders who claim their, so, their cause solely based on states' rights. Well, this is a little bit of a stretch. The speech was reproduced in other parts of the South, and um, I'm not so certain how many places in the United States itself. I mean, because we're talking about now the Confederate States in the United States. Um, but the South had already advertised its positions before this point. It had uh, it had um, sent information on its cause, particularly in particular South Carolina, had actually sent what amounted to a diplomatic paper to Europe in an effort to persuade Europeans that they should support the South. In that particular paper, uh, slavery was mentioned. So the South was not trying to hide anything in their position. But this gets into the question of why slavery. And even Stevens talks about that. Why slavery? Now you could say, when you read the Cornerstone speech, and Mr. Connolly has reproduced some of that in this particular um, this particular piece. Uh, he says, quote, of the Confederacy's cornerstone as described by Stevens, there can be no doubt. His language was straightforward and unequivocal. The proper status of the Negro was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present rev revolution. The founders struggled with the notion of equal rights, that slavery and the slave trade were in violation of the laws of nature, and that the peculiar institution would someday fade away. Stevens believed that Jefferson, Madison, and their ilk erred badly. Quote, they rested upon the assumption of the equality of the races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation. The government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew. The new Southern Republic, therefore, aimed to rectify these errors, and he declared that, quote, its foundations were laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination of the superior, to the superior race is the natural and normal condition. Um... And then he has a, a large block from 
the speech where he says, quote, the substratum of our society is made of the material fitted by nature for it. And by experience, we know that it is best not only for the superior, but of the inferior race, that it should be so. It is indeed in conformity with the ordinance of the creator. It is not for us to inquire into the wisdom of his ordinances or to question them for his own purposes. He has made one race to differ from another, and he has made one star to differ from another star in the gal- in the in, in glory. Excuse me. The great objects of humanity are best attained when there is conformity to his laws and decrees in the formation of governments as well as in all things else. Our confederacy is founded upon principles in strict conformity with these laws. The stone, which was rejected by its first builders, is become the chief of the corner, the real cornerstone in our new, in our new edifice. He says African slaves may someday improve, Stephen suggested, but only through the schooling and work and civilization that plantation slavery offered. Southern plantations would, in effect, offer the symbol of Southern nationality to the world. In olden times, the olive branch was considered the emblem of peace. We will send to the nations of the earth another informal potential emblem of the same, the cotton plant. So what Stevens is saying here is, in 21st century, extremely racist. There's no doubt about it. Stevens is using terms, superior race, inferior race. He's, he's advocating slavery as the way to handle these separate races, which he considers to be inferior in, and superior. And he was not alone in this, right? Stevens didn't make this stuff up. There were many men throughout the South who argued the same thing. But I will also say there were many men in the North who argued the exact same thing. You see, Stevens was a man of the 19th century. And as a man of the 19th century, he held views that were in line with the 19th century. Um, There's a piece I wrote a few years back entitled, Is White Supremacy an Exclusively Southern Ideology? And what I did in this particular piece is go through and pull quote after quote after quote from Northerners who said essentially the exact same thing that Stevens is saying here in the Cornerstone speech. Now, um, is his interpretation of the founding generation correct? Did Madison and Jefferson believe that, uh, that there was an equality of the races? Absolutely not. Jefferson had made it very clear in his notes on the state of Virginia that he did not believe that. Uh, in his, but what happened in the 19th century, and you look at people like Albert Taylor Bledsoe, who not only wrote his Davis a Traitor, which I did a reading seminar on, but he also wrote uh, works on theology and philosophy. And he went to great pains to explain his position on that particular line in the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he was very critical of this. And other Southerners were critical of that too. And because of this, and what Stevens will eventually say, and I'm going I'm to get into this in a second, where Stevens referenced this speech in 1865 and what he said about it and what were Connolly errors and what Stevens is actually doing with that. What he says about that when he explains in more detail what he meant by these things, not for a public consumption, by the way. I think you get to the heart of what we're talking about here in the 19th century. So the rest of this piece is, is outstanding. He, he quotes Marshall DeRosa, whose book, uh, The Confederate Constitution of 1861, is the go-to book on this particular on that particular topic. And this is this is a um, a piece in part on the Confederate Constitution and Alexander H. Stevens. 
Uh, and it's in some ways, I mean, he's he's defending the Confederate Constitution. He's calling it a, a, an improvement uh, in so many ways on the U.S. Constitution. Uh, now, there is one part of that as well. When you look at slavery, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about a critique of the Confederate Constitution, a critique of the South, and what you, it's one of those other arguments. Well, here it is. Here's Alexander H. Stevens saying that it's all about race. Well, was the North not complicit in this as well? And so, I mean, I can, like I said, I can pull uh, again, quote after quote. Um. And I'm not going to use the language because this is a G-rated podcast. I'm not going to use the language that these Northerners, Republicans and Democrats, used. Uh, you know, for example, Lyman Trumbull of Illinois, who was later one of the leading figures in the Senate during the war, said that, quote, We, the Republican Party, are the white man's party. We are for the free white man and for making white labor acceptable, acceptable and honorable, which it can never be when, the, when Negro slave labor is brought into competition with it. We are, the, we are the white man's party. The Republican Party is the white man's party. Uh, James Harlan, a United States senator from Iowa, asked in 1860, shall the territories be Africanized, to which he responded that he favored territorial extension only for the white race. An Ohio Republican pleaded with the Democrats who, quote, stop shouting Sambo at us. We have no Sambo in our platform. We object to Sambo. We don't want him about. We insist that he should not be forced upon us. The Republican Party, he claimed, was created for the benefit of the white race. So, again, these are the people that are going to take power in D.C. With the South out of the Union, this is what's in power. Now, it didn't mean these people weren't anti-slavery. They were. In fact, a Kansian Republican wrote this. They're writing for the New York Tribune in 1855. He wrote this, quote, First, then be not deceived in the character of the anti-slavery feeling. Many who are known as free state men are not anti-slavery in our northern acceptation of the word. They are more properly Negro haters who vote free state to keep Negroes out free or slave. One half of them would go for slavery if Negroes were allowed, were to be allowed here at all. The inherent sinfulness of slavery is not one thought by them. One third of the Free State Party is made up of men who act from convictions of conscience. The remaining two thirds are Free State men from conviction that the profits of freedom, derivable in the shape of customers, would be greater than if slavery existed. So when you look at the Republican Party, maybe one third, one third were abolitionists. Two-thirds just simply wanted the territories to be for, as Lyman Trumbull said, the white man. Or, as James Harlan said, for the white race, they didn't want it Africanized. Uh, William Seward said that uh, uh, blacks were a foreign and feeble element, like the Indian, incapable of assimilation and unwisely and unnecessarily transplanted to our fields. The, that blacks were a foreign and feeble element. Is, is there any difference between what Seward is saying there and what Alexander H. Stevens is saying? In fact, one of the arguments that was made, often made, when you look at 1861, you have this period where we don't know what's going to happen exactly. Uh, Daniel Crofts has pointed this out in his book on the Corwin Amendment, the other 13th Amendment, the Corwin Amendment. He says, look, 
Southerners understood that Northerners, or those in, in, in Congress that were left, understood that Northerners couldn't abolish slavery in the South, and that they were going to great pains to say they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to abolish slavery in the South. They just didn't want slavery extended. That's it. William Sawyer, Sawyer, I'm sorry, at the Ohio Convention for the Revision of the State Constitution in 1850, Ohio, quote, The United States was, were designed by God in heaven to be governed and inhabited by the Anglo-Saxon race and by them alone. Blacks were very little removed from the condition of dumb beasts. They wallowed in the mire like hogs, and there was nothing of civilization in their aboriginal conditions. This is in Ohio. I don't know if he was a Democrat or Republican. Probably became a Republican. If he lived 1861, I don't know much about William Sawyer outside of that. But again, here, what's the difference in that statement than Alexander H. Stevens? So is Stevens being a little bit disingenuous when he makes this cornerstone speech about what Northerners actually believed, about what Jefferson and Madison actually believed? We know that they didn't believe in the equality of the races. It was clear. And so what you had were these two rhetorical camps set up. But if Stevens is saying this, the evidence, and of course, Abraham Lincoln himself in 1858 had said many of these same things. Abraham Lincoln, I am not in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes nor of qualifying them to hold office nor to intermarry with white people. I am in favor of the race to which I belong, having the superior position. We have to remember that Alexander H. Stevens and Abraham Lincoln were good friends. Uh, this is the problem with these kind of, of papers, because they don't provide context, the context of the 19th century. And you can say that Stevens was saying these things. Yeah, I mean, he's saying these things. Is he saying anything that would not be said by Northerners at the same time? No, he's not. That's the issue with this using the cornerstone speech. And I just saw the other day some nitwit organization was sent to me about how, uh, I mean, you read the first paragraph, it just drips with this vitriol. I mean, it's, uh, and, and they use the cornerstone speech, the declarations of secession, and, um, the uh, I'd have to go back and find it, um, but they use the it's always the same thing. So here is the evidence that the Confederacy, our Southerners were just these evil, uh, terrible people. Uh, let me let me um, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, a fact in shrine here. Here it is. More importantly, these statues honor people who fought for a nation founded to preserve black enslavement. A fact enshrined in its constitution, its member states' declarations of reasons for secession, its vice president's most famous speech. <laughs> I mean, so here are the three things: it's the cornerstone speech, it's the declarations for secession, and it's the constitution. Now, again, if you take my U.S. history class, I get into one of these, the most famous declarations of secession, which of South Carolina, and I talk about what they say about slavery in that. And Stevens is saying the exact same thing. There's no difference. And the Constitution. So let's get into these other two things. First, let's look at what Stevens said about this cornerstone speech. Um, 
He talks about this in his Recollections of Alexander H. Stevens, which is a personal diary. First and foremost, it's a personal diary, which means that it was not intended for a public consumption. And how do I know that? Because it was not published, I believe, until 1910. So this thing sat for about 50 years unpublished. Now, it doesn't mean people didn't read it or didn't know it was there. He says this, The idea set forth by Mr. Greeley in his American conflict and by Senator Sumner in his late eulogy on Lincoln, that this noble band of warriors was nothing but a set of reckless-spirited rebels disloyal to the Constitution of the United States and conspiring to overthrow it and establish on its ruins a slave oligarchy is utterly unfounded. The ruling motive of these armed hosts was to maintain and perpetuate the principles of the Constitution, even out of the Union, when they could no longer maintain them in it. I speak of the ideas and sentiments prevailing among our people at the time, and not of the correctness of their judgment as to whether the constitutional rights could or would have been maintained in the Union. What I affirm is that the Southern people were actuated by no disloyalty to the Constitution, the principles it contained, or to the form of government thereby established. You look at the U.S. Constitution. Now, he's critical of what Connolly says. He's critical of the Constitution here. He's not critical of the Constitution. He's not critical of the Constitution at all. Uh, Stevens actually suggested, as he said, that we should just adopt the U.S. Constitution because we are maintaining the U.S. Constitution. That was the cause for Stevens. He says, nor were the men who met at Montgomery and framed the Confederate States Constitution governed by any such motives as, as have been ascribed. The work of their hands show this. By their fruits ye shall know them. The new Constitution was but an embodiment of all the essential principles of liberty contained in the old. Some changes were made on minor points. All were of conservative character. Most only settling clearly points in the old that gave rise to doubt, cavil, and conflicting construction. This is exactly right. The great essential principles of Anglo-Saxon liberty dating back to the Magna Charta were reaffirmed and guaranteed. Nothing savoring of the slightest spirit of disloyalty to these principles is to be found in it. It's just, I mean, he's, he's speaking the truth here. This, if you look at the Confederate Constitution, he's right. There were changes to it, but the form and structure was essentially the same. When Georgia seceded against my witch, judgment, and vote, my greatest apprehension was lest liberty be lost and the confusion that might follow. To guard against such an event, I myself... Looking to the future, introduce a resolution which was passed by the seceding convention instructing Georgia delegates to a proposed convention in Montgomery of seceding states to adopt the old constitution as basis for any new one that might be formed. This is an interesting part, too, and I'm going to get into this with the constitution now just briefly for a second. Even on African slavery in the South, no change from the old was made in the new constitution save in clearly defining those points on which disputes had arisen, all of which points have been decided by the highest judicial tribunals of the old government as they were now set forth in the fundamental law of the new. The only striking difference between the old constitution and the new one was the immediate and perpetual prohibition of the African slave trade in the latter, whereas continuance of this traffic for 20 years had been provided for in the former. So, when you look at where people say, well, the Confederate Constitution, and, and if you click on, if you, if you see what she's going to, this, this author of this piece that I talked about with Confederate um, 
the Confederate Constitution. This goes out to Wikipedia, right? So, of course, Wikipedia is the definitive source. Uh, and they get into slavery, where things are different. Um, and this is where people point to Article 1, Section 9. Article 1, Section 9. Um, where it says, no bill of attainder or, or ex post facto law or law denying or impairing the right of property in Negro slaves shall be passed. Um, that is one of the ones that says, yeah, I mean, here's, we're, and people point to that, well, here it is. You can't, you cannot be a free state. This is not true. This is not true at all. It says the Congress, Article 1 deals with the powers of Congress. Congress cannot do these things. It doesn't mean the states can't do those things. In fact, this is the exact same situation in the United States. Everyone recognizes it. There's no difference between this, this statement and what was already implied and understood in the U.S. Constitution. And this was clearly stated during the arguments over the Corwin Amendment. Again, Southerners, why, why are you saying that you can't abolish? We already know you can't abolish slavery in the South. We already know this. There's no power in the U.S. Constitution that allows us to do this. Everyone knew that. In 1860 and 61, everyone knew that. If that was the case, then uh, Massachusetts couldn't have abolished slavery, nor could have New York or Pennsylvania. The states can deal with it how they wish, and the states did it in the in the North on their own. The same thing was here in the Confederate Constitution. Of course, it also protected slavery in the territories which was a major bone of contention in the U.S. Constitution. Can, and, and of course, what Stevens is alluding to here is that the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision say that, said that you can take slavery into the territories. That was the question. It wasn't about slavery, the morality of slavery. It was why slavery. It was, and, and let me get back into Stevens because he gets into this. He says, as for my Savannah speech, which about which so much has been said and, and in regard to which I am representative setting forth slavery as a cornerstone of the Confederacy, it is proper for me to state that that speech was extemporaneous. The reporter's notes, which were very imperfect, were hastily corrected by me and were published without further revision with several glaring errors. The substance of what I said on slavery was that on the points under the old Constitution, out of which so much discussion, agitation, and strife between the states had arisen, no future contention could arise as these had been put to rest by clear language. I did not say, nor do I think the proper the, the reporter represented me as saying that there was the slightest change in the new constitution from the from the old regarding the status of the African race among us, and there wasn't. And then he says this: slavery was without doubt the occasion of secession. Out of it rose the breach of compact, for instance, on the part of several northern states in refusing to comply with constitutional obligations as to rendition of fugitives from service, a course betraying total disregard for the constitutional barriers and guarantees. So here he's saying the issue of slavery was really a legal, political, and constitutional one, not a moral one. And this is where we get in, and this is why I said I did a whole podcast on why slavery. Slavery is important. It's an important issue in the antebellum period. If you say it's not, you're, you're missing something. But why was it important? And Stephen says it here. It was important because you had constitutional questions about the institution. Fugitive slaves, the fugitive slave laws were being opposed by the North. And, of course, the Southerners are saying, well, look, this is in the Constitution. You can't nullify that. And they're right about that. In the, in the original document, 
there's the Fugitive Slave Clause. You have to return fugitives. Now, the Supreme Court would eventually say that you don't have to use state resources to do it. The states can say, no, we're not going to use any of our law enforcement to go round up slaves. But you can't deny the marshals, U.S. marshals, to go into states and round up slaves. You can't do that. So, uh, because it's in the Constitution, right? And then you had the issue of expansion. And why did the North want to prohibit slaves from expanding? Well, I read to you some quotes because of racism is one, but also because of power. Northerners didn't want slave states in the West because that would mean that you would have uh, particularly New England and the mid-Atlantic states because you would have a perpetual agrarian majority. And that agrarian majority would not be in favor of central banking, high tariffs, and maybe internal improvements. Though Calhoun rightly said at one point, look, if we don't get on board with internal improvements, we're going to lose the West. If we lose the West, we lose the government. The West were natural allies with the South because they're farmers. It's just that they didn't have slave labor. So there was that dispute about what who should be out in the West. And, and uh, Midwesterners, uh, people in Illinois and in Indiana and Ohio and Wisconsin, a lot of these people were saying, look, we just don't want blacks out here at all. I mean, this is competition for us. We don't want them here. Eric Foner's Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men is the best book he ever wrote uh, because it's actually good. <laughs> uh, and it was uh, Eugene Genovese had a hand in that book. And uh, he gets into this quite well, um, where he talks about how this was the driving force for, for Westerners. So it's about, it's about power. And Stevens says as much. So you have to put all this in context. Uh, Stevens does talk about race, even in his own diary. He says, I admitted that the fathers, both of the North and the South, who framed the old Constitution while recognizing existing slavery and guaranteeing its continuance under the Constitution, so long as the state should severally see fit to tolerate the respective limits, were perhaps all opposed to the principle. This is true, right? So they said slavery could exist, but they were all opposed to it. Jefferson, Madison, Washington, all looked for its early extinction throughout the United States. That's also true. He's saying he didn't... Now, he said that they were for the equality of the races, if that's correctly transcribed. But Stevens is saying that's not even correctly transcribed. How do we know? Stevens looked at it and said, here you go, publish this. But how do we know? This is what he actually said. He didn't write it down. A reporter was writing it down. We know that things can be... And, and if you look at the two different... There's, there's different versions of it, right? Each one said something different. They're trying to get to the gist of what Stephen said, but we don't know exactly what he said. We know what he's saying here. And, and Connolly says this is, this is Stevens' uh, uh, attempt to set the record straight for the public. No, it wasn't. This is his diary. He's in prison when he's writing this thing. This is not being published. But on the subject of slavery so-called, great and radical changes had taken place in the realm of thought. Many eminent Latter-day statesmen, philosophers, and philanthropists had different views from the fathers. The patriotism of the fathers was not questioned, nor, the ability, nor their ability and wisdom, but it devolved on the public men and statesmen of each generation to grapple with and solve the problems of their own times. Uh, and so he gets into race here in, in the proper relationship and his mind of the black and white races at the time. And he says things that are not in contrast to what Northerners had been saying. Uh, 
He does say the new confederation was entered to with this distinct understanding. The principle of the subordination of the inferior to the superior was the cornerstone on which it was formed. I use this metaphor merely to illustrate the firm convictions of the framers of the new constitution that this relation of the black to the white race, which existed in 1787, was not wrong in itself, either morally or politically, that it was in conformity to the nature and best of both races. Um, He says, my own opinion on slavery, as often expressed, was that if the institution was not the best or could not be made the best for both races, looking to the advancement and progress of both, physically and morally, it ought to be abolished. Um, He said, education was denied. This was wrong. Never condemned the wrong. I ever condemned the wrong, he said. Marriage was not recognized. This was wrong that I condemned. Many things connected with it did not meet my approval, but excited my disgust, abhorrence, and and detestation. The same I may say of things connected with the best institutions of the best communities in which my lot has been cast. Great improvements were, however, going on in the condition of blacks in the South. And then he gets into B. He says, look, if, if there was a point, he says, much greater, he says uh, much greater would have been made, I verily believe, but for outside agitation. I have but small doubt that education would have been allowed long ago in Georgia, except for outside pressure, which stopped internal reform. So he's saying, look, when, when the attacks started to come in the South, this is when Southerners you know, bristled and bowed their back and chest out, and they said, "We're not going to take this. We're going to we're going to do some things that he said were wrong because there should have been education. There should have been some other things going on here." So Stevens actually, after the war, I mean, said, "Look, we need to we need to take care of these of these former slaves. They did so much for us. We need to do." This is another speech that's often forgotten for Alexander H. Stevens. But you get into these issues, and these are things that. Um, I think are, are problematic because you have uh, people writing this trash, this idiot that's writing about you know the three things that they often point to, and the Stevens speech is often held. Here it is. This is this is the definitive answer about what the Confederacy was all about. Here's Stevens saying, "Wait a second, here you didn't. It has to be put in context. This is what I was saying, not for again, not for public consumption. He's writing this in his own diary. Now I'm sure at some point he figured this thing would be published." But I can't find that this thing was published before 1910, 1910, which is 45 years after he wrote it. So if he intended it to be public knowledge in 1865, it certainly wasn't that. Now, maybe he thought, well, if I'm executed because he's in jail, something this thing would get published and it would be my uh, last will. But he gets into the drudgery of just being in prison for the most part in this thing. This is one part of this entire diary. He's mostly talking about what his life was like in prison. So um, I, I think that it's important to understand, to understand the context of the speech, to look at it within terms of what other people were saying at the time, to understand the Constitution itself and what the Confederate Constitution, how it was really no different from the U.S. Constitution on the, on the power of the general government vis-a-vis slavery. The U.S. Constitution couldn't abolish slavery. That's why it took the 13th Amendment to do it to abolish slavery. The Congress couldn't abolish slavery. There was no no difference in the Confederate Constitution and the U.S. Constitution in that regard. And you could make the case, I mean, Southerners are making the case, there was no difference in the, uh, in the point on property in the territories, slave property in the territories, that the U.S. Constitution did not give the Congress the power to regulate that institution, the territories, either. But, of course, that was one of the disputes. And some Southerners said it did. I mean, so what they're trying to do is say, look, here, we're solving that dispute. But it wasn't about the morality of slavery or the legality of slavery or any of these things that people would say was not 
part of this anyways. So, um, that's the cornerstone speech. I think that it's important to understand this speech within the context of the times. A racist speech? Absolutely. Uh, he's saying things, but so are many Northerners that, of course, we would not find any in any way fathomable today. But you have to put history within context. If you don't do that, if you simply produce poll quotes that really don't mean anything without the context of the time in which it's being discussed and written. So, uh, And Stevens himself said that that speech was not exactly accurate as to what he was saying. Um, he wasn't, as Connolly says he's trying to backpedal and do these inconsistent, I think he's being very consistent in what he's saying here. Um, he's, he's pointing out the differences in the new and the old, and he says, not really in there. We, we adopted wholesale the U.S. Constitution, the structure of it, with, with a few changes, and Connolly actually gets into those changes, does a good job with that. Um, but he's, he's misrepresenting Stevens in a way as to what he's saying there, and I think it's important to understand that. It's not to defend Stevens. It's not to defend the speech at all. It's not to defend what he was saying there. I, um, but it's just to put it all within context uh, in the 19th century, in the 19th century mind. So that's it. Uh, I wanted to, to, to touch on this because I think it's a big issue. And it's it's one that is nuanced. You, you have to understand that. And when we talk about things like contextualization, well, this is real contextualization. You have to get the context of the time which something is being written and the attitudes of the time to understand these people and what they were saying. Uh, again, from the 21st century mind, there's nothing in that that we would find valuable today. Um, but uh, within the context of the time, you can get to see where Stevens is saying, yeah, I mean, I'm just pointing out some, in his mind, uh, some of the, the condition of society in, in 1861. And Northerners, two-thirds of Northerners, agreed. I'll see you next time on The Brian McLean Show. <laughs>